Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. been in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Um, I know we're not having your uh, your usual Mother's Day message as always, and so I at least tried to put a devotional together for you on, on Mother's Day, right? So um, felt like I should do that since, since we're going to talk about some tough things today in Acts chapter 13. But uh, again, we've been here for a couple of weeks talking about being lights in the darkness, um, as a biblical analogy, God's people, God's witnesses are like lights in a dark world. Lights in a dark world. Uh, witnesses are lights. Lights are witnesses. Philippians 2 verse 15, kind of a key verse on this subject is that it says that as, as believers, we appear as lights in a crooked and perverse generation. We're lights in the world. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. He said, let your light shine before men. And he says, he says don't put your, your light under a basket. Uh, you, don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't light a lamp and then put it under a basket. You take that light and you put it on a lampstand so that it, it benefits the, the rest of the people in that house. Well, um, we want to be... Uh, Win some lights, we want to be bright lights, we want to be effective lights, effective witnesses. And so we're looking at some witnessing principles as we go through this chapter, and I'm excited to look at a few more today. And I'll remind us briefly that this is a uh, pivotal chapter in the book of Acts. We have, uh, right, Acts 1.8 is the outline for the book. You're going to be my witnesses uh, in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost. And so uh, we've been to Jerusalem in chapters 1 through 7, Judea and Samaria, chapters 8 through 12, and now we're entering the, the uttermost in chapter 13. It's going from Jew to Jew and Gentile to now mostly Gentile. We're going from Peter to Peter and Saul and then Paul. We're going into him as Paul has kind of taken the place as the, the leading apostle to the Gentiles. And uh, we're in the first missionary journey entering into chapter 13, and uh, we're kind of halfway through that journey. If you're just joining us for the day, um, you're picking up with us halfway through that journey. We're in Pisidian Antioch, which would be uh, up here in, in uh, modern-day Turkey in the area of Galatia, Asia Minor. But, uh, and we ended up here really because of an encounter that took place. I'm using my clicker a lot today. Um, a classroom effect, right? Um, we, we ran into the Paul and Barnabas left Antioch, and they came over here to Cyprus, evangelized the entire island from east to west, and they meet Sergius Paulus down here in Paphos on the west coast of Cyprus, and, and what do we find out from archaeological discoveries is that um, Sergius Paulus is actually, he's this governor, a Roman governor, but he's got relation up here, and this is probably where he's from up here in Pisidian Antioch, and so you find inscriptions with his name on it, both here and 
and down in Cyprus. And I f- find that incredibly, um, incredibly neat because I just, I, I really like archaeology. I'm just getting more and more into it all the time because it's an amazing thing. I just, I don't know, I've always liked playing in the sandbox. And this connects the sandbox with, with the Bible, right? So you're just, archaeology is like modern day treasure hunting. You dig in this dirt and you find treasures like this. Like, we have over 100, do you guys know this? We have over 100 artifacts uh, with, well, 100 people's names on artifacts that have been unearthed. So like 70 people from the Old Testament, we've unearthed artifacts with their name on it. It's 32 from the New Testament. And so archaeology just continues to prove and support the Bible, and I find that incredibly neat bolstering for our faith. And so I wanted to share that, that with you, some of these pictures that have Sergius Paulus on it. And some of these are being made today, like this was found up in Pisidian Antioch. This, with Sergius's name on it, was found down here in Paphos, or down in the island of Cyprus on that west end there. That's pretty neat. Um, but as we, we're going to pick it up in verse 38. We're looking at this sermon of Paul. Paul is preaching in Pisidian Antioch, and a simple outline of his sermon so far might be um, God's promise to send the Savior. He, he's, he's preached on that. God was going to send a Savior. He's preached that uh, God has kept that promise in the Savior. He has preached the gospel that Jesus came. He died. He was buried. He rose again. And now Paul's getting into how God has promised. God has a promise to save through that Savior. He saves through that Savior. And we're picking it up in verse 38 through 42. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren. So he's going from to us. The promise has been made to us, to us, to us. Now he's saying to you. He's applying it to them. Let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Um, I don't know about... I don't know about some of you guys out there who are preachers and teachers of the Word, but I've never had people at the end of the sermon like say, no, wait, don't stop, come back, teach us more. No, it just never happens. Right? <laughs> but it did with Paul and Barnabas. They wanted to know more about Christ and uh, invited them back the next week. So um, Paul, so far again, he's reminded them of the promise to send the Savior, how God has kept that promise. And now Paul moves into the personal application portion of the message. And that's our focus today. What's his application? Here's how you can be saved. God has kept this promise. Now, be saved through faith in this Savior. Jesus died for sins. He was buried and He rose again. Therefore, we should respond to that, right? But if God is working in, in, in Jesus, that calls for they response. Let it be known to you. This is personal for them. You, you need to believe. You need to trust. 
You need to depend on, have faith in this Savior who died for you. To be what? What are these two big words in there? Forgiven and justified. Justification coming through the forgiveness, right? So we spent some time on this, this key word justified last week. Uh, to be justified, what's that mean? To be declared righteous. To be declared righteous. It's a forensic, judicial term. Justified. All of us, no matter who we are, we're going to stand before that high court of heaven someday, before the holy judge of the universe as sinners. We're all guilty, right? We've all sinned against God. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve separation from God forever in hell. But notice verse 38 and 39. Through Him, it says it twice, through Him, through Jesus, you can stand before this judge and go free. You can be free. You can be justified. Justified. Declared righteous. Isn't that insane? I mean, are you guys really thinking about what's being said here? You, can, you as a dirty, rotten sinner can stand before the holy God of the universe and go free. You can spend eternity with Him. Like your, like your sins aren't... He doesn't take your sins into account justified, just as if I'd never sinned, basically. Isn't that amazing? Jesus did that for you so that if you believe in Him, you can be forgiven. We can have our sins completely forgiven. I mean, that's a guy, even just to say that, guys. I didn't grow up with that thinking. I always, I grew up with the thinking that I had to keep confessing and keep working to try to have my sins forgiven. Paul's saying, look, the law of Moses is done. Jesus died for you once and for all so you can be completely forgiven. Hallelujah. Someone, yeah, thank you. Someone say hallelujah. Your, your sins are forgiven. Whew. What a weight off your shoulders, right? Isn't that, that is, that's good news. That's something that Paul says the law could never do. The law was... It was, it, was a, it was one of these things where you, it could deal with some sin through sacrifice. If I sinned, I offered a sacrifice, I'm forgiven. But as soon as I sin again, what am I doing? I offer another sacrifice, and another sacrifice, and another sacrifice. Well, it could never bring that complete, everlasting, once-for-all forgiveness that we need, that sets us free, that, that cleanses our conscience. But Jesus came. And he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all of those sacrifices. Those Old Testament sacrifices, I like to look at them as like a, I don't know, like, kind of like a credit card. Like sins were forgiven and they were put on that. You know, they were kind of covered by the credit card. But when Jesus came, he paid that credit card in full. So our, our sins are completely covered. You know, totally paid for. Um, atoned for. So we can now have a perfect standing before God. And that question, guys, how can a man be justified before God? That is the most important question. I want to remind us, I know I talked about this last week, I'm just going to repeat it because it's so critical. This is the most important question that you're going to answer in your life. How can a man be justified before God? That's going to spark, in Acts chapter 15, the first church council. How is man justified? Is it by works? Is it by grace and works? Or is it by grace? 
It's, this is what caused a, a much-needed and appropriate reformation 500 years ago. This is, this is uh, what's going to determine your destiny, how you answer this question. Humanly speaking, it's going to determine your destiny. This is the, the greatest issue when you witness. It's the greatest issue when you witness because it does determine your destiny. Sinners need to know, how can I be justified before God? And there's three approaches. Justification by works, trying to be good enough before God by your, by your own works. Coming up in Acts, we're going to see um, that there was a lot of Jews who did not respond kindly to Paul saying that the law of Moses was insufficient. They felt like everybody needed to at least be circumcised and do some religious works and keep the law of Moses. So they were resting on their justification. They're resting their justification upon their observance of the law of Moses, their religious rituals. Um, that's what they were saying. I rest upon my religious works. Uh, today, if you ask someone if they're going to heaven or hell, just on the street, what are most of them going to say? Heaven, right? And you say, well, why? They say, well, I've never killed anybody. I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I'm, I'm nicer than my neighbor. I do some good deeds now and then. I, I go to church. I, I was baptized or I was confirmed. And what's that saying? Trans, translate that. Works. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, I've been religious enough. I've been good enough. That's works. That's trying to be good enough in your own effort. Then there's justification by grace and works, and this is kind of a weird one, but it's kind of like saying, yeah, God, I'm saved by grace, but I've also got to do my part, right? I kind of chip in a little bit. This is the Christ plus version. Christ died, yes, but I've also got to put in my two cents. That's kind of what I grew up with. Jesus died historically for your sins. This was a historical event. He kind of unlocked the door, but now I've got to open it through my religious works and keeping the sacraments. And then there's uh, justification by grace, which is I am completely unworthy of eternal life. I am a sinner who has fallen short before the glory of God, and I do not, there's nothing I am, and there's nothing I do that can save me. I can never be good enough. I must do what? I must depend on have faith in, trust in, believe that Jesus died for me. Does that make sense? It's the opposite of works, to have faith. So, um, that's, that's what the Bible says. That's what Paul's saying. Only the last one, justification by grace through faith, is the good news. Gospel means Good news. Is it good news if I tell you that if you just keep measuring up, you do enough works, then you might be good enough to get to heaven? Is that good news? It's not good news. Good news is salvation is a free gift received by faith in Christ and what He's done for me. Romans 4, 5 says, to the one, look at this, how clear can you get? You want to know what the Bible says about how to get to heaven? Here it is. To the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. He can, un he can justify an ungodly person? You mean, a whoa. His faith is counted as what? Righteousness. So instead of trying to conjure up our own righteousness through works, the Bible says you're never going to be righteous enough. You need a righteousness that is not your own, and that is Christ's perfect righteousness. This is imputed righteousness. Righteousness. 
Um, who went home justified this day? Remember this, this picture. Let me rewind here. A Pharisee and a tax collector are standing in the temple, and they're praying to God. And the Pharisee says, I'm so glad you didn't make me like this tax collector over here, a sinner. And, I, you know, I, I tithe my mint and my cumin, and, you know, I'm just such a re- good religious person. But then you got the tax collector over here, sinner, right, who won't even look up towards heaven. He just beats his breast and says, God, I am, I am so unworthy. I have to depend on your mercy to be saved. Jesus says, out of these two people, only one went home justified. Can you guess who it was? Was it the religious, the religious guy here who's working really hard? No. It was the tax collector who said, God, I just throw myself on your mercy. And we throw ourselves on the mercy that has been offered to us in Christ. So, um, lights, if we're going to be lights in this world, we have got to keep that message clear. That we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. Paul says in Philippians that we need, even he needed, a righteousness that wasn't his own. This is what Paul said. Paul was like the Pharisee of Pharisees, Hebrew of Hebrews guy, kept the law to a T, man. And, and he, says, he says, I count it all rubbish. It's all dung because of what? Because I, he says this, I want to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Isn't that great? That is good news. Jesus takes our sin upon himself in exchange for his righteousness that's placed upon us. Judicially, our position before God Perfect, perfect standing before God. Um, Got to keep that message clear. The gospel presentation of Paul here also shows us that when we go to present the gospel to someone, um, we should encourage them to personally apply it. Don't you see that in his message? He's asking people to personally believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In a one-on-one conversation, you're sharing the good news, right? You might say, do you believe that? What I've just shared, Jesus died for your sins, he was buried, he rose again to prove it, Do you and to justify you. Do, do you believe that? There's nothing wrong with asking that question. Do you believe that? And, and maybe even ask them, is there anything preventing you right now from trusting in Christ as your Savior? Is there anything stopping you right now from trusting Christ as your Savior? And if not, hallelujah, right? You might, you might lead them in a prayer. You know, Lord I'm, a, Lord, I'm a sinner. I understand I need a Savior. Right? I, I, I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. You might you just lead them in a simple prayer and then remind them it's not the prayer that saves you, it's, it's faith in Christ. But the prayer is how you're expressing that to God, maybe. So, um, after that, I would encourage anyone who who is trusted in Christ to then, I guess I would, I would never tell anyone that they are saved, necessarily. You know, I don't, I don't really know what's going on in their heart, but I would encourage assurance of salvation right then and there. I would say, 
Um, because that keeps people from falling right back into a works-based mindset. I would say something along the lines of, if you've really believed in Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, did you know that the Bible says you have eternal life? For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. You have eternal life if you've believed in His Son. 1 John 5, 11-13, I love to go to that, uh, that verse there. It's somewhere around here. I can, there it is. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. This life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. There's no question there, is there? It's so black and white here. It's so clear. He who do, who, if you don't have the Son, you don't have the life. And He says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I think it's important to encourage those to whom we've witnessed Uh, to encourage them with this this hope of assurance, to keep them from thinking, okay, I'm saved by grace through faith, now I've got to go go out and and stay saved through my religious works or something like that. So in your witnessing, you might might do that. Encourage assurance of salvation. And then in verses 40 through 41, we are reminded of why this issue of justification by grace is, or by works, is so important. And why I say this, it has to be divisive. The issue of justification has to be divisive. Okay? Because eternal destinies are at stake. Look again at Paul's warning here. This is a quote from the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets, in the Old Testament, may not come upon you. He's talking to his audience. He says, Behold, you scoffers, marvel and perish. For I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. And uh, so when Habakkuk wrote that, he was calling on an unrepentant nation of Israel to look with astonishment at God's coming judgment. He was going to come and judge the nation of Israel for um, their uh, refusal to keep the, the law of Moses. They were, they were falling into idolatry. They weren't keeping the law of Moses from the heart. They were in this works-based mindset. And, and uh, time and time again, God said, look, if you guys don't repent as a nation here, you're going into Babylon. You're going to be taken out of Israel east over into Babylon. And there you're going to be there for 70 years and God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them about the coming judgment. And what did they do? They scoffed. They said, God would never judge us. God would never send Babylon to judge us. We're God's chosen people, right? So then what does God do? He sends them, they end up in exile. And, And Paul is using the same warning again in this situation, in their, this new relevant situation to show them that once again God's offering salvation from judgment. And not just, uh, not just a judgment that's, you know, kind of earthly exile judgment. This is eternal judgment. I'll save you from eternal judgment. I'm offering you eternal salvation. It's much greater, right? Far greater. If God has offered forgiveness of sins, and justification, what does that imply? That implies to reject that would mean I'm not forgiven. 
It would imply that I'm not justified, and, and, right? So, sadly, many don't believe, and they remain in unforgiveness. They reject God's free gift. They reject the free gift of salvation, and they remain unjustified before God, declared guilty instead of righteous. And so they turn their nose up at God's grace, and the, and the prophet Habakkuk says they're going to perish for it. And that word perish, what is that? That, that, that takes us right back to John 3.16, doesn't it? For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. To not believe, to not trust in Christ as your Savior, will result in a perishing. And the perishing is not just physical. This is, this is an eternal separation from God in hell, and, and this warning about perishing gives us another proper and significant biblical motivation for sharing the gospel, and it's because of eternal judgment. That's why, why should we share the gospel? Well, one, God has commanded us. Number two, it's good news people need to hear, and if they don't, there's judgment coming. We have to warn people of eternal judgment, and this is something, guys, that we don't like to talk about, do we? It's kind of making me uncomfortable already just talking about it. Saying, this isn't the Mother's Day message I wanted. But if you're a mom who loves the Bible and you understand the gospel, you're going to want this message preached to your kids. Because there's not enough people preaching it anymore. The doctrine of hell is some sort of museum relic that's tucked back into the dark corners. Right? And we only bring it out once in a while. You go to a liberal church, you know what they call the doctrine of hell? Toxic. This is toxic stuff. But it's, but it's part of the full counsel of God. It's part of the full counsel of God, and the good news doesn't make a lick of sense without the bad news. You've got to have bad news in order to understand and accept that good news. The gospel message of salvation and Jesus' mission to save wouldn't make any sense without the bad news. The bad news is sinners have been separated from God, and they will be forever if they don't accept Jesus as their Savior. And the reason, again, we struggle with this, the thought of hell, we don't want to talk about it, is because we love, we love people. We all have people we love that, that we know don't know Christ. Maybe we have loved ones who have died and, uh, without Christ, and we, we wrestle with that emotionally and intellectually, but we could, we could take, a, take a tip from Jesus. Jesus really loved people, didn't He? You know what Jesus... The Bible records Jesus talking more about hell than about heaven. Did you know that? Because He loved people. He didn't want people to end up there. And so He was willing to speak about it. He was willing to share this truth with people. He didn't want people to enter through the, the broad gate. He wanted people to enter through the narrow gate because the broad gate leads to destruction. Um, because we wrestle with the reality of hell, there's a lot of erroneous views that have developed, and this is kind of a review of uh, Sunday school a few weeks ago for some of you who were there. But uh, some of those erroneous views would be, number one, we, we think that there is no literal place called hell. And hell is just a state of mind. Maybe I've lived through hell or it's my situation in life. I've lived through hell. War is hell. You're, you make your own heaven or hell right here on earth. That's, that's treating hell flippantly. 
Uh, Mary Baker Eddy was one of these. She's the founder and false teacher of Christian science. And uh, she said things like, um, our evil beliefs are hell. Or, you know, we go through mental torment. So to her, hell was more of a present state of doubt and discouragement and despair than it was a future condition. Um, a second erroneous view would be that there is a hell, but those who go there are annihilated and they just cease to exist forever. And there's a lot of people who believe that and teach that. Actually, a um, couple years ago, if you were on your way back from Rapid City and you got to about Hermosa, on the south side of Hermosa, there was a big billboard there that said something about, like, is hell real? And you go to their website, and the whole website was dedicated to teaching that people ceased to exist in hell, that they wouldn't suffer for eternity. Boy, wouldn't that be nice? But it's not biblical. But a lot of people take this word uh, destruction. There's going to be uh, those who reject the gospel are going to pay the penalty of eternal destruction. That's 2 Thessalonians 1.9. They take that and say that destruction here means they're going to be, they're going to cease to exist. Well, does anybody have a pop can here this morning? Um, if I had a pop can up here, there's a cup. I need that cup. This, this cup, I can destroy this cup, right? Does it cease to exist? It's still there, right? It's just ruined. That's the idea. That was fun. I should do that more often. Um, <laughs> sorry. That word destroy there can mean ruin. It can mean lost. It lo- it's a lostness to it. So um, that same word des- destroy, destruction, is used to describe the lost sheep in Jesus' teaching. Remember the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son? Uh, someone who dies without Christ is eternally lost and in ruin, in a ruined state. That Thessalonians verse says, that, that, that people who reject the gospel are going to pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from. They're going to be separated away from the Lord and from the glory of His power. So they still exist, but they're separated from God and His goodness. And I don't know if you've, you've thought about this, but in hell, uh, so in this life, Jesus says, I make, He makes the sun to, to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. That, that sun comes up every morning and blesses everybody, righteous and unrighteous. When he sends rain, he sends rain on only the believers, right? No, he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Everybody in this world gets to experience the goodness of God. He is good. All things that are good in this world come from God. In hell, there is no sunshine. There is no rain. There is nothing good because you're separated from that goodness. That's a scary thing to think of never seeing the light of day again. What is, how does Jesus describe hell? Outer darkness. There is no light there. There is no rain. It's a scary thing. The third false idea about hell is that there's going to be, there is a hell, but those who are, who are there who go there are going to be given a second opportunity. Uh, there's nothing in Scripture to support this view, and there's a lot of people who believe it. Reincarnation, 
is a religious philosophy that kind of promotes that idea, I'll just, I'll die and come back to life, you know, that sort of thing, um, as something else or someone else or in a different caste system um, level. Uh, the Catholic Church doctrine of purgatory, uh, a temporal pun- place of punishment for sins that weren't necessarily dealt with in this life. Uh, you go to purgatory on your way to heaven to deal with, deal with your sins, you know, that you didn't confess or repent of or something like that. That, that too, is another. That's like, it's basically like a second chance, isn't it? Um, you go there and you pay for your own sins, man. Just on the radio this last week, the, the, the Catholic priest on the radio, this is airing in our town. People are listening to this stuff, okay? He said that the dogma of their church is that prayers can help people get out of purgatory and into heaven. And someone said, how many prayers? How much prayer? He said, I don't know. It's kind of like the grace. He said, I wasn't listening to it. My friend was. Um, He says, the Catholic priest said that the dogma of the Catholic Church is that you earn grace. That grace is earned. That's what he said. That's the dogma of the church. Turn with me to Romans chapter 11, verse 6. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. That priest's definition of grace is different than the Bible's definition of grace. So who are you going to listen to? Man's word or God's word? God's word. You see why this is so important? Why this has to be divisive? It must be. You believe the wrong thing, you go to hell. That's why we want to be Bereans, right? We want to get into the Word. We want to know what God says, not just what man has to say. Don't just take my word for it, right? Search the Scriptures yourself. The, man, this is, this is why Paul gets so serious in the book of Galatians. If you've been here for three years, you went to, through the book of Galatians with us, right? That's the first book I went through. He pronounced a curse in Galatians 1, 6-9, a curse of anathema on anybody who would preach a works-based gospel. He said, you know what anathema means? Let them be damned to hell. He says, after he gets done just, you know, laying out the clear doctrine that we're saved by grace through faith, we walk by grace through faith, he says, anybody who comes and brings in this works-based stuff, he says, cast them out. Cast out this, this bondwoman and her son. It was an illustration from the Old Testament. Okay? Cast out these false teachers who are bringing in the false gospel and leaving you guys in bondage, spiritual bondage. He says it's, it's for freedom. Galatians 5.1, it's for freedom Christ set us free. Keep standing firm. Don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So cast them out and don't allow them to propagate either. Um. Don't allow them to spread that, that fake gospel junk. It's not gospel. It's bad news. It's not good news. Hebrews 9.27, in contrast to the idea that there's a second opportunity in hell in the afterlife, Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed once for man to die, and after that, face judgment. Right? A judgment of faith. You, you, go, you die, you go to heaven, you stand before God, and you either trust it in Jesus Christ and you, you enjoy the, the glory and goodness of God forever, or you failed to believe in Christ, and you're separated from Him forever. That's the way it is. 
It's that simple. The biblical view of hell is that hell is a real place of eternal conscious punishment for Satan, for the other fallen angels like Satan, and for unbelievers. This is what it says. St. Me speaking here, this is the word. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Forever and ever. And if anyone's name wasn't found in the book of life, he was also thrown into the lake of fire. You see that? The insistence, not on annihilation, but on eternal torment. Maybe nothing um, pulls back the curtain on eternal damnation like Luke 16, 19 through 31, where Jesus is he's talking about the afterlife of two men. Um, the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man, he, Lazarus, uh, the rich man, he's, he's so rich that he didn't even think about his eternal destiny. He had everything he needed in this life. He didn't think about the afterlife. Uh, Lazarus did. So anyway, one of them, Lazarus, uh, he dies, he goes to paradise. He's with Abraham. The other guy, he dies, and he goes to, he goes to Hades, which is, is hell until the lake of fire. So um, having never considered his eternal destiny, and so Jesus gives us a glimpse of what it's like, the afterlife, and he, and he said it's, it shows us that in eternity there are two different places. You can go to paradise or you can go to torment, basically. And they're two different places, and uh, you cannot go from one to the other. There's no crossing over. He says there's a great chasm in between these two that you cannot cross. So when you're there, you're there forever. You're not getting out. And the one that's actually in the place of torment is in agony, and he's, he's longing for just a drop of water on his tongue. Remember I said it doesn't rain there. He's longing for a drop of water on his tongue. He's in agony in this torment, in this flame, he says. And then he says, send someone. He really he expresses his desire for someone still living to go reach his brothers. He doesn't want his brothers to end up there as well. He wants them to know about this place so that they don't go there. And you remember what he's told? If they don't, if they, these brothers of yours who are still living don't believe the law and the prophets, they're not going to listen, even if someone rises from the dead. So you either believe the Word of God and what it's talking about here, or you don't. But it ain't going to change the fact and the reality that this place really does exist, and people are going there in throngs. And our job is witnesses. And I don't want to put too much pressure on you because I believe God's sovereign. We'll talk more about that. But you do need that, that a nice, heavy dose of responsibility that, yeah, I have, an, I have a responsibility to share the gospel with people because this place is real. And I love people too much not to tell them about that and how they can be saved from it. I also want to encourage us that when we, when we go to share, when we go to witness to someone and we talk about the bad news, let's not become these noisy gong people with the, you know, the, the cardboard signs on Main Street that are, you know, you're a sinner going to hell. And let's not become those noisy gongs type of people. This is a biblical reality. This is a real reality. We, we have to share it. 
But let's, let's emphasize Jesus saves. Amen? But real quick in verse 42, we'll find one more witnessing principle. Thank, thank you for your patient ears today. One more witnessing principle from Paul. Um, people in the crowd, they want to know more after he gets done preaching. And so they beg him to come back and teach them more. And they have questions. That's pretty obvious. They have questions, and they want to hear more about Jesus. And maybe they are still uncommitted. You know, they're kind of on the fence yet. And that's okay. What, a, what does a light do in that situation? Well, look what Paul does. He offers to come back, and he offers to, to talk more about it. And so lights are going to resp- respond obligingly to questions. All right, questions come with anyone who's seeking truth. If you're seeking truth, you're going to have questions, right? So every witness should expect questions. And some questions are, are really good. You're going to be sharing the gospel. They're going to ask a question, and you're going to, you know, you're, going to, you're going to use that to lead them even closer to Christ. But some questions, I'll be honest with you, and many times uh, you've experienced this if you, if you, if you share your faith. Um, some people are going to ask you questions that are just like, Totally irrelevant. I call them the spiritual warfare questions that are designed to take your focus on justification, just throw it somewhere else and get you caught up in something else like politics or whatever, right? So um, I call those spiritual warfare questions. What do we do with those? What do we do with those? Well, one, we thank the person for the question. This is something you can do. This is something uh, my, my teacher taught me back in Bible school, um, Thank the person for that question. Congratulate them for having the question, right? I mean, you might say, well, that's a really great question. But do you mind if we just set that question aside until I'm done with finishing the gospel, presenting the gospel? You know, and by the end of the conversation, that question probably doesn't even matter anymore. Uh, it probably won't ever come up again. And uh, maybe it is still a little relevant. You still want to talk about that. You want to address that. Um, or they're still questioning about it, well, that's, that's the time to do it there, right at the, right at the end. Or uh, if you don't have the answer to that question, you might just say, hey, I don't, I, don't know that, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'll get back to you on it. How about that? And then that gives you another opportunity to share the gospel later. Sometimes I, I've said, well, I have an answer, but I but I could do a lot better. If I had a little more time to think about it, I could get back to you on that and have a much more uh, apt response to that question. Do you want to meet again? You know, and we'll talk about that. That'll give you a second opportunity to share. But uh, in sum, guys, we know everyone is going to spend eternity somewhere based on their acceptance of or their rejection of the gospel. And we have to keep in this reality in mind as we go about our daily lives, as we, we interact with people, um, we want to be ambassadors for the kingdom, seeking to reconcile people to God. And I think sometimes we're so afraid of people's reactions that we don't share at all. You guys know what I'm talking about. It's like we're so afraid of their reaction, we don't share at all. But I want to remind us that not everyone's going to oppose the gospel. Okay? It happens a lot, but not everyone. Okay? Many people simply haven't heard the gospel presented clearly before. And they need to hear that good news. And you haven't. I've forgotten the details of this story, but 
And I've told it before, but I, you know, I heard a story about a high school girl on the school bus who worked up the courage to tell her friends about the good news of Jesus Christ dying for their sins. And, and she, she shares the gospel with her friends on the school bus, worked up all that courage, you know, afraid of their reaction. And they say, how long have you known about this? She says, well, I pretty much always have. I was raised in church, I always, I always knew this. And they're like, it took you how long? <laughs> like, why didn't you tell us this sooner? Like, do you really believe it if you're not? What took you so long? You know, and I can't, I can't, I couldn't help, I can't help but feel the same way. I grew up in the Catholic Church. You know what I heard? It wasn't a clear gospel. I heard work for it, do the religious works, do the sacraments, be a good person, go to confessional, and then at the end of the day, cross your fingers because you don't know. And then, you know, you don't know how much time you're going to spend in purgatory either, even if you are going to heaven. No wonder I turned to rebellion, the other work of the flesh, going from legalism to license. Neither one his foundation has a foundation in the Spirit. It wasn't until after high school when God placed believers in my life, they gave me a Bible, they shared the clear gospel message that I finally understood Jesus paid it all. And He gives me a righteousness that's not my own so that I can be justified. That's incredible to think. We have that news to share with people. It's so freeing, it's so amazing, and, and it changes destinies. Um, as lights, we should not be afraid of the darkness. I mean, by nature, is a light afraid of the darkness? You got to turn that light on. Does it flicker and say, oh, no, I don't know. No, no. Unless the light's going out. But that's irrelevant to my analogy. Um, by nature, light isn't overcome by darkness. Darkness is overcome by light overpowers it. So I want to encourage us to let our lights shine, put them on the lampstand, not hide our light.